Welcome to the Passive Income Through Multifamily Real Estate Podcast, brought to you by Limitless Estates, where Kyle and Lolita talk to top experts and seasoned passive investors in the business to help provide clarity and key insights to keep you safe on your journey to financial freedom. Our goal is to help you get educated on how to create passive income for you and your family by using real estate as your vehicle. Now, here are your hosts, Kyle and Lolita. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode. This is the Passive Income Through Multifamily Real Estate Podcast. I'm your co-host, Lolita, also joined by Kyle. Joining us today, Jeremy Roll. Jeremy, thanks for joining us today. How are you? Good, good. I hope you guys are doing well. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Good, awesome. Well, here's a little bit about Jeremy. Jeremy is a full-time passive cash flow investor. He is currently an investor in more than 70 opportunities across more than $1 billion worth of real estate and business assets. Amongst many other things, Jeremy is also the co-founder of Phoebe, which is the largest group of public real estate meetings in California with over 27,000 members. So, so many things to cover, not even sure where to start, but Jeremy, could you please tell the listeners a little bit more about yourself and what you currently do? Sure. Yeah. Thanks again for having me. So I guess the best way to describe me is I'm a full-time passive cash flow investor. Um, I essentially started investing in different syndications like multifamily and other asset classes, mostly in commercial real estate starting in 2002. And that happened after the dot-com crash. Um, I was just sick of the stock market due to the volatility because I'm really kind of a low risk, low and steady guy, but also due to the lack of predictability. And it's really predictability that I look for now. And that's really why I went down this path way back when. So I've been investing in alternative kind of cash flow uh, assets since 2002. And I've been a full-time investor since 2007. Uh, that's actually the year that I was actually able to get out of the corporate world thanks to the cash flow. So my focus is uh, mostly really just for my own investments to continue my cash flow stream so I never have to go back to the corporate world. And I also manage an investor group of over a thousand investors who look for uh, similar type of opportunities to me uh, in terms of cash flow. Um, I can tell you I'm an advisor for Real, a Realty Mogul, which is a pretty large crowdfunding website in the US. Um, I'm originally from Montreal, Canada, and have an MBA from the Wharton School in Philadelphia and spent over 10 years in the corporate world at some pretty big companies like uh, Toyota headquarters, Disney headquarters, GM headquarters, and some others too. Um, but I will say that I really do not want to sound like an infomercial. That's not the point of this, but cash flow like truly changed my life, got me out of the corporate world and has opened just amazing doors. And I'm just very thankful for where I've gotten to today. So awesome. Well, thank you for that. That's quite the bio. So, um, you mentioned in 2007, you left the corporate world to become a full-time passive cash flow investor. So can you tell our listeners, what does that look like? And what does it mean to be a full-time passive cash flow investor? Ah, great question. Um, I think a lot of people probably picture me sitting on the beach here in LA every day. And the reality is that I literally work harder and more hours than when I worked in the corporate world. And the reason is because to find opportunities like these, uh, most of them are not allowed to be publicly marketed. It takes a lot of networking. Um, I really don't think someone could be a full-time passive cash flow investor without doing a lot of networking. It just typically is not going to work, or at least it's not going to optimize your situation. And so I spend a lot of my day networking with other investors to like discuss opportunities we're all looking at, networking with um, operators like yourself of different asset classes, 
um, networking with, um, you know, just anybody I can find that seems to make sense that's interested in cash flow. And you just never know what door is going to open up. And that's actually one of the reasons why I co-founded Four Investors by Investors in 2007. Um, that's a nonprofit organization. And the reason why I co-founded it is because it was all for networking and it was really help people to network in an environment where there is no sales pitch. That's really why we started it. We actually lose money off it every year, but if it helps a lot of people and it's still manageable, that's great. And that's been the case so far. So networking has really changed my life because it's got me access to all these um, various um, opportunities. And so that's a really big component of being a passive cash flow investor. Um, also remember that no matter which opportunities you're investing in, especially when it comes to real estate, a lot of them are kind of five or 10 year type of opportunities when you're passive. And that means that after a certain amount of time, you're gonna to have to continue to reinvest and find new opportunities to reinvest in because what you don't wanna do is get a payment back from a sale and then not be able to reinvest it. So a lot of my day is spent trying to reinvest my capital at this point because it's been 17 years later. And I'm, you know, I've, I don't know how many times I've reinvested, but I've certainly been in over, over 70 things right now. I've been in well over hundred things over time and all that required reinvestment, which requires a lot of work. Um, that's assuming you want to keep your cash flow snowball going and growing. So, um, so that, that's really how I spend my days looking at opportunities, talking to other investors, talking to um, different operators and sponsors of opportunities, trying to find like the next opportunity to invest in. Great. And so for aspiring passive cash flow investors, which I think we are all um, aspiring to do that, do you have to have capital in order to get started being a full-time passive cash flow investor? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, well, so I started with some capital. Basically what I did is I rotated all my money out of stocks and bonds into cash flow after the dot-com crash, being like very unenamored with the stock market. Um, but I have heard of strategies people can use to build equity to then invest passively. So if you're a passive cash flow investor, you essentially have to have equity to actually invest, right? You have to have cash to invest. But if you have no cash whatsoever and you want to try to go down that path, You've got to look at different ways to actually build up cash. So if you want to get involved directly in real estate, for example, a lot of people talk about wholesaling properties to either single family or even commercial properties. I honestly don't know very little about it. I know that it's a lot of work, but it's definitely a path some people go down to build up equity. Um, you can also look at maybe getting um, an equity partner to do a house flip, for example, as a good starting point. Um, you may want to partner with someone else who's done a flip. Maybe you can actually bring a friend of yours that has the equity and then you'll be involved in the opportunity somehow. And so, you know, you may need to get creative if you've got no equity and there's definitely ways out there to get creative. By the way, I mean, I'm, I'm a little old now, so I'm like mid forties, but you know, these days, the gig economy, right? I mean, you can, you can maybe do your full-time job and let's say you're breaking even on your cost of living with that, then you may want to look at doing uh, Uber or whatever else that could actually add some equity so you can actually start to invest that. Um, one thing I will say for sure is that you're, you're relatively young and you're listening or watching this. Um, I would recommend starting as early as you can. Um, you know, that is key because I'm not sure how well you necessarily know numbers, but the compounding of the numbers over the years is really what amounts to a lot over time. Um, it's the old saying that if, you know, if you invest a certain amount in your retirement account over 30 years, you'll become, you potentially become a, a millionaire. Part of the reason is because of the compounding. So the time value of the money. And so um, anyway, long story short is that there are ways, you know, creative ways, but if you have no equity, I think you do need to be creative and maybe even ask around and see what suggestions people have. 
Right. And I think you hit it on the head. You mentioned in today's economy or in today's world, there's no reason why you can't start that side hustle, which everyone talks about and, you know, work a couple hours after work and, and, and create that equity. Um, there's so many different things that you can do via tech and the internet now that, um, you know, it's really easy and, and simple to do. So, yeah, I just want to also say that I think, um, you know, I think it's important for people to see, like, I have an extremely long-term mindset. Like, I'm talking about, I've been at this 17 years. I'm looking forward to where I'm going to be in, like, another 10 years from now. And this isn't, generally, if there's get-rich-quick schemes, I'd recommend you stay away from them. You know, real estate is really about getting rich slow and about building the snowball over time. But you got to have a lot of patience. And, um, and to your point, you have to have a lot of persistence, right, because it takes many years. So if you can kind of combine those two, you can do really well, but you've got to really take the long-term approach most of the time because that's what's really realistic. Awesome. Thank you. So as far as passive investors are concerned, I know there's a lot of different platforms that they can get educated, but what are the best ways they can educate themselves in a safe environment? And when I mean safe, in kind of like you mentioned with Phoebe, um, and maybe if you can give the listeners a couple other examples, in an environment where they're not being pitched or sold or you know, come do this, come do that. It's, it's a very open and um, safe environment. Yeah, that's a great question. So um, look, there are definitely meetings all around the U.S., depending on when you're located. And some of those meetings will be purely sales pitches to upsell and sell books and tapes and seminars and everything else. Some of them will be a combination of pitches, but with good content, meaning you can still learn a lot. Just don't pay attention to the pitch. Um, and some of them will be kind of like Phoebe, where there is a core foundation of no sales pitch. Um, and the best way to determine where to go, in my opinion, is to actually give a couple a try in person and then ask the attendees at the end when there's networking, which meetings they go to um, that are good without sales pitches and which ones to avoid. Unfortunately, I mean, you could definitely leverage other people's uh, experiences already to, to learn that, but you're going to have to try going to a couple to actually speak to people to find that out. And you may actually go to a couple of sales pitches by accident um, and end up getting information from there from the attendees as to which ones you should go to. That frankly is probably worth the hassle because eventually you're gonna to wanna to weed them out. So that's one option for sure. Another option is um, biggerpockets.com. I'm not affiliated with them at all, but I'm just mentioning because I think they're the largest community online for real estate investors in the US. Um, they're definitely a good place to go. Um, you may wanna post up as a random example, looking for a local real estate meeting that focuses on single family real estate in uh, you know, so-and-so city, you're probably gonna get res some responses and some suggestions that may even help the shortcut what we just talked about where you may not even have to go to a meeting to find that out. So that's kind of the newer way to do it online. Um, Meetup.com is actually where we post all of our Phoebe meetings. We've been using it from the start since 2007. A ton of meetings in many cities that will be listed. You'd be surprised actually at how many meetings are listed of frankly any, you know, any hobby you like or anything in the city. Um, you may want to go in there, read the descriptions and kind of weed them out as best as possible. That's another good place to locate at least where to go. Um, and then for learning specifically, um, I would say that, um, the, so if you're an accredited investor, um, which is a definition, by the way, it's not like a membership of a club. It's a certain mm -hmm. minimum requirement for net worth and or um, income you can look up online. It's an SEC definition. Then you can actually sign up to some of the local crowdfunding sites or sorry, the, the national crowdfunding sites, and I'm talking about the real estate crowdfunding sites like Realty Mogul and some others. And then um, if you want to learn, what you could do is you could, let's say you want to learn about multifamily, right? 
um, you can go on in your pajamas for an hour, sign up to these sites, and literally download 20 multifamily opportunities, and then do, um, you know, basically comparison of all of them, right? So if you want to look at a certain type of profile, you may want to print out 10 of them that are all similar. And this is actually how I learned. I call it opportunity exposure. Um, so basically, and but it's a lot more efficient these days. You know, I used to have to go to these in-meeting, uh, in-person in meetings to be able to find opportunities because most of them are allowed to, were, were, now none of them were allowed to be publicly marketed back then. Some of them are allowed to and some of them aren't right now. But you can go onto these websites at any hour and download these opportunities. Just understand if you download them from the crowdfunding websites, a lot of those websites are an intermediary, meaning they take some fees. And so if you found those deals directly, then the returns will probably be higher because they're kind of a middleman. But um, you can still download them and compare them and get a lot of good information from them, even if you have no interest in investing in them, so to speak. But uh, opportunity exposure is a really big part of the learning process. And it's the way that I end up learning myself. Awesome. So you mentioned meetup.com and going to actual meetups. And that's kind of how we got educated as well and found a lot of great value in that. And we met a lot of great people who ended up helping us in the long run. What do you say to people who are introverts that say, you know what, I, I'm just not comfortable in that environment? Um, that's a great question. So, um, you know, I think that a bigger pockets might be a better route for that person then because it's all online. Um, and B, I would say that, you know, if let's say someone's introvert and they're not comfortable going to, let's say, two, three, four meetups a month in their area, right? Um, and another possibly more efficient way is to go to a larger meeting, meaning a conference. So there are some conferences in certain cities in the U.S. If that person is willing to get on the plane, potentially and go to one meeting instead of, you know, that make for one meeting that may have three, four, 500 people could be more efficient than going to 10 meetups with 30 people, right? So maybe that'll at least cut the time down they have to spend. But unfortunately, I gotta be honest, like if you wanna be a full-time or even a part-time passive cash flow investor and you wanna find the best opportunities possible, meaning you wanna get exposed to a lot of opportunities, right, for selection, so you can really filter them down and be picky, it's, it's really about the networking in the end of the day. And I, the only networking for me that's quickly coming to mind online is the, the biggerpockets.com. Um, otherwise, it's a question of going to in-person meetings, just kind of getting comfortable with it, I guess. Yeah, the thing that helped me the most was having the leader there with me. You know, you can bring friends to these things, and a lot of them are free. And if you bring someone that you feel a little bit more comfortable with, maybe you'll feel a little bit more comfortable with the meetings. It, it does take a while, but if you're an introvert, that does not mean that you can't go to these networking events and meet good people um, and network with people. It just does take time. So my suggestion would be maybe go with a couple of people that uh, feel comfortable or you feel comfortable with um, so you kind of have that circle of friends around you to support you. Yeah, that's actually a great suggestion. Uh, you know, another suggestion for you, and, and only because I've, <laughs> I've hosted so many meetings, I've kind of got to learn this. I would, if you're trying to be efficient, and let's say you're an introvert and you want to go with somebody, but you want to go to the least number of meetings possible to get just acquainted, um, I recommend going to paid meetings, uh, you know, $20 meetings, $30 meetings, um, because some of the free meetings, if you're going there specifically to network and talk to other investors, a lot of the free meetings tend to have either brand new people or people who are just kind of kicking the tires and they're not really going to have a lot of good feedback for you probably. And of course I'm generalizing, but I'm just saying if you're trying to go to the minimum amount of meetings possible to get the most efficiency, I recommend to going, going to some of the more paid meetings because they tend to filter out the people who are just coming for the free pizza. Um, and I, 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 it's not a big percentage of people who do come for the free pizza, but they're there. I've hosted them before. And so, you know, there's nothing wrong with them, but if you're just trying to go to the minimum number of meetings possible, 
then I'd recommend spending the money because that'll cut down some of your time and increase some of your efficiency. Got it. So can you touch a little bit more about Phoebe, kind of what it is about, what you guys cover and how you structure your meetings? Yeah. So um, just a caveat. I mean, I don't host any of our meetings anymore. Um, I've uh, since I've, my kids are growing up very quickly, they're 11 and eight at the moment and I've been spending more time with them. So I haven't hosted one of our meetings in a number of years, but I do go to them and um, our meetings. So when we first started, the meetings were very small, right? So my first meeting ever was actually to Starbucks with three other people who came and then eventually graduated to a conference room. And that was a round table discussion. We maxed out at about 30 people where we can really handle a round table discussion. After that, you basically are going to have a typical um, one of two formats, either a speaker format, could even be the organizer who's a speaker, or you're going to have a panel uh, discussion format where there might be one, two, uh, two or three or more panelists. Um, most, a lot of our meetings now are panel discussions. I'd say maybe 50-50 panel discussions and um, individual speakers. So each of our organizers has the freedom to actually choose whichever uh, structure works best for them. Um, and um, as an attendee, what I strongly recommend is that if you're gonna go out and meet up and take a look at a topic, make sure that the topic that's the right fit for you is from an educational perspective. Make sure there's a decent critical mass of people coming if you really wanna go there for the networking. And, um, you know, if you prefer a panel discussion to get more perspectives, go to the panel discussion. If you're okay with like an expert speaker, as long as you're able to vet the speaker and make sure they're not going to pitch you, then that's a great thing too. Um, you can get some tremendous education at a very low cost, uh, just coming to these meetings and listening. I've learned a lot over the years because of a lot of meetings that I've gone to. Um, and so we have different, uh, formats depending on the speaker preference. Okay, cool. Awesome. Yeah, I've been to several of those events and they're very valuable and you meet a ton of people in the industry. And, uh, you know, I, I love the different formats. I like going to both and you get a lot of different value out of each. So, and you know, I should, I should add actually that we do have a semi-annual networking event that we do. That's an all chapter event and that's purely a big room that we actually rent out at a, at a um, conference center. Um, and we do have that twice a year where all the chapters come together, but that's not one of the normal monthly formats. I just forgot. Right. Cool. So switching gears a little bit here, um, diversification. So in the stock market, you hear a lot about diversification, but I don't think I hear it as much as I would like to when it comes to real estate. Can you talk about the importance of passive cash flow investors still diversifying their portfolios? Absolutely. I am hyper diversified, so I'm biased but because I'm in over 70 things, but I think it's absolutely critical. So I like to tell people that what I have found I diversify across is asset classes, geographies, and operators. So I'll kind of explain each. So asset class is kind of more obvious. You know, I, most of the investing I do is a commercial real estate. I also do some single family and do some other stuff like ATM machines and some other stuff. But um, think about commercial real estate on its own, right? So I'm invested in mobile home parks, self-storage, apartments, student housing apartments, industrial, office, retail strip centers. I'm even in a retail and closed mall in Canada at the moment. Um, and so, and that's just commercial, right? So it's really critical to get diversified across anything you're investing in um, from an asset class perspective because, you know, office buildings may have less demand during a downturn, whereas multifamily may be more consistent, right? And then whereas, um, you know, uh, retail strip center also may have um, some downturn issue, but then be very strong and an uptrend in the economy. And so you're doing it all for diversification and you certainly don't want to put all your eggs into one basket. Um, so that's kind of an asset class perspective. And by the way, asset classes change over time, right? What if you invested 100% of your money into retail and closed malls 20 years ago? You've got a huge problem today. 
And predicting what's going to happen or 10 to 20 years from now with the pace that things are changing today with self-driving cars, robots replacing jobs, you know, predicting demand for an asset class, office buildings even is a great example with a lot of telecommuting. It's unclear where office buildings are going to be best suited in 10 years from now with telecommuting and the self-driving cars. And it's very hard to predict where people are going to want those office buildings to be, just as an example. So things change over time, right? Nothing really stays the same. So it's important to be diversified across asset classes. Geographies, um, a little more obvious, right? So you want to be diversified across geographies for a couple of important reasons. One is because local economies can change over time. What might be strong today may not be strong in eight years because some, ha some event happened or perhaps people are retiring and going south, you invested in the north. So um, geography is kind of important from a, from a um, economic, local economy type perspective. It's also important from a weather phenomenon perspective, right? So in, in LA here, we have earthquake risk. In Florida, you've got hurricane risk. And what's interesting about hurricane risk, just for example, is that like I'm very comfortable investing in self-storage in Florida, but then all the other asset classes I'm very concerned about because self-storage can handle winds and there's really no windows and the damage you get is typically like at the AC unit on the roof. And by the way, everybody has to typically carry uh, flood insurance from all the tenanting perspective and it's built out of concrete where you're not really going to have a problem with the water. So, um, right, so you've got to really kind of think about any weather issues um, in that it could be a cold climate with pipes bursting in mobile home parks. It could be earthquakes. It could be hurricanes. It could be flooding in certain areas. So um, you want to take all that into account and get diversified across that too. Um, and so those are the two main things that I look at in definitely in geography. And then operators is what I call just the very straightforward Madoff effect, right? You don't want to put all of your eggs or even half your eggs in one basket. Um, I think that that's very risky. And so you're going to want to diversify across operators, both from a performance perspective, because you don't know for sure how they're going to execute, but also just from a Madoff perspective and that you don't know if someone is necessarily going to be, you know, fraudulent, mismanagement, um, you know, all different types of possibility. And, you know, you can never get rid of those risks. They're all what I call 1% risks. You may think you're making a bet on the best person and it may not work out like that. And so the best way to handle that in advance is to diversify properly. Perfect. So when I hear, especially when it comes to diversifying across asset classes, which I completely agree with, do you, how much education do you need on each of those asset classes to make a prudent judgment and prudent investment? Because it seems like, you know, you can keep going as far as you want and be an expert in every field. Do you need to be an expert in every asset class to invest in them passively? Great question. So you don't need to be an expert as far as you don't know. I, I couldn't, I've been invested in many self-storage. I mean, I've invested in funds, literally, if you can count every property I've indirectly invested in through funds, I've probably invested in over 100 mobile home parks. I have no clue how to run a mobile home park, nor would I want to. Um, what I need to be able to do is two important things. One is assess who I'm making a bet on, which in my opinion is the most important thing when being a passive investor. And the second most important thing is the property itself, which is a very close second and very important too. And so on the property itself, um, you need to have a basic understanding of the kind of, I think you need to understand what to look out for, right? And that's, that's very important. So you need to read enough deals and have enough education so that I'll give you some examples. Like in mobile home parks, it's kind of, if you're kind of a looking for predictability like me and be trying to be low risk, a lot of the investors like me tend to stay away from parks that are mostly um, uh, rental uh, parks, meaning that most of the homes are actually owned by the park and not by the tenants. They're not, they're not uh, owner occupied homes. The reason is because a profile of a tenant park is going to be 
a little more risky and that there's going to be more turnover. There might be more challenges within the park as far as the tenant base and the type of tenant they're going to have, right? Versus having pride of ownership and people looking out for each other and everything else. And so that's something you probably wouldn't know unless you started to really understand mobile home parks. Um, you know, with, um, I can give you that kind of example across every asset class where there's like several things you really should know about the asset class to look out for. Um, you cannot count on the person putting this marketing pitch together to you to like necessarily point out these challenges. So you're going to want to get a, you know, a good enough understanding by going to hearing some people speak about it, maybe even getting some education. There are courses out there depending on how, you know, how deep you want to go into an asset class. Um, and, um, you know, in fact, even reading some of these marketing decks they put together, you can see where people focus on. Like, in other words, um, you might read about a local economy that's strong across all of 10 multifamily um, uh, documents that you read for looking at different opportunities and realize, okay, I better see a strong local economy in any deal I'm looking at. That's something to look out for now, right? Because you're going to find that mentioned in most of them. And so you can start to at least see which boxes you should be checking it's really that, but to become that next level, you've got to understand the asset classes well enough to know what you don't want to be investing in, not necessarily what you do want to be investing in. Got and it. it. And just take some time. Yep. I mean, if anyone is overwhelmed right now, Jeremy's been doing this for 17 plus years. So, you know, it takes time. He didn't just do this in year one. So, uh, you know, take it slow, do one asset class at a time. And then eventually over five, 10, 15 years, you'll have much more diversified portfolio. Yeah, I could not agree more. You know, just focus on one asset class at a time. I did not invest in mobile home parks when I first started in 2002. I kept it relatively simple, you know, apartments and I got to learn office and all that. And so, um, I, I couldn't agree with you more on that suggestion. Don't try and invest in 10 different things right away. It just, it's, it's not going to work out well if you're trying to be low risk. Right. Okay. So recently you've been pretty vocal about your feelings on investing in multifamily. Can you tell us a little bit about how you do feel about multifamily and why? Yeah, sure. And I want to clarify, like, this is not a multifamily thing. I know, you know, I've talked about this a little bit. Right. <laughs> a, a general market asset pricing. So I actually... Okay. I, w I would say that it's unfair to mention multifamily. I actually think that, yeah, I'm, I'm really low risk. And so I've been sitting on the sidelines for two years now. Uh, now, I still invest in things, but I look for unique pricing. So when I say sitting on the sidelines, it's all relative. I've still made many investments over the past two years. But relatively speaking, to me, everything's just overpriced. Uh, the multiple of cash flow to price are people willing to pay in any asset class, it's just way too high. And I I'm going to give you an example. It's probably going to make you laugh, okay? Because um, my strategy is to stay away from what's hot. That's how I, and I actually rotate when I'm investing in depending where we are in the cycle and what's really hot because people tend to rotate. So I'm going to just lay out what happened this past cycle. The cycle's not done, but between 09 and 12, you could kind of invest in any asset class and you'd probably be okay from a pricing perspective. But what was pretty obvious during that time was that with all the housing foreclosures, demand for apartments was very high. Okay, there was a ton of foreclosures on people's homes and they had to live somewhere. So as of 2013 is when I started to get really concerned that, that uh, apartment prices were too high for me already. And the reason why is because it was very crowded. So it's actually when I switched and focused to another asset class. At that point, it was pretty much um, self-storage, uh, mobile home parks, office and retail strip centers. Eventually, the, the last bastion was mobile home parks. And I'd say about a year and a half ago is when it got really overpriced. And that's a bit, but everything else, like so self-storage got overpriced around 2015, 16, 
office retails had its own issues. We don't need to get into those, but you know, that pricing actually took a correction probably in about 2016, 17 with all the, the press with, you know, with all the online sales and everything. So that asset class is unique and different, but um, even office to me got overpriced within probably two years ago. And so the last bastion was mobile home parks and all of a sudden everyone crowded into it right at the last, you know, at the end of the cycle. And that just got really silly in the past year or two. So uh, at least from my perspective. So it's not a, it's not a multifamily thing. And by the way, I've actually invested in a, a number of multifamily deals between 2013 and 2018, actually, even in 2018, I invested in a couple, but they were just really unique deals. So I don't want to single out multifamily or any asset class. I still make investments, just that they've got to be unique pricing, unique situations when I'm looking at them today. And that's how I feel about any asset class, honestly. But I love multifamily. It's one of my favorite asset classes and frankly one of the top four that I think is the best bets for the next 10 years from a predictability standpoint meaning that people always have to live somewhere even during downturns rents tend to be pretty sticky in most areas and don't fluctuate that much um, and populations increasing with the amount of debt everybody have demand for homes hasn't quite been there and assuming that continues multifamily is going to be a great place to be so that's one of the four asset classes I like best for predictability of cash flow for the next 10 years so awesome. Like, I, I wasn't expecting that answer, but, um, yeah, it's nothing to do with multifamily. Just that it's everything's overpriced. Yeah. I yeah. I, you just have to do your due diligence, right? And anytime you put money into a deal, you've got to do your due diligence and you got to make sure it's the right deal and it fits your goals, uh, personally and financially. So, yeah, I, I want to say two more things about this topic. Number one is I think some people listening are probably think I'm nuts that I actually shifted away from multifamily in 2013 because there was a ton of opportunity left on the table by me doing that. It's just because I'm uniquely low risk. Um, and again, I want to mention I've invested in, if I had to guess, I've probably invested in seven to 10 apartment buildings since then, even though I told you that I switched away. Okay. Um, number two is that um, I actually know a ton of people who are investing in multifamily right now. And the thesis uh, uh, and why they're comfortable with it is because if they can invest in deals and add some value and maybe increase rents, rehab or whatever the strategy is, they know there's going to be continued demand during a downturn. And so they're very comfortable with that. And if they're going to hold it longer term, they're even more comfortable with that. I actually see the true, like, I actually get that. Like, I've actually had this conversation with many investors on the phone. I think that's a pretty interesting strategy. I just don't typically invest in heavy value add deals for my risk profile. And that's why I'm not focused on that. If you're just looking at a pure cash flow multiple, that's why I'm saying that, that you know, that and other asset classes are, are very expensive because I don't benefit from having major value adds for, to kind of add padding for a potential downturn. Right. Right. Perfect. Okay. Uh, thanks for that. Is there anything else you want to add to or tell our listeners? Um, I would say, you know, just if you're new and you're trying to learn, take your time. It's really not worth jumping into something until you fully understand it properly. Um, now's a great time to learn. If you agree asset prices are high like me, then it's a great time to learn because you're not missing out on much. It's not like it's 2009 and everything's on sale. And so it's a good, very good time to learn. But do, do be careful if you're new um, and make sure you understand pricing and research some of the cycles. Real estate's cyclical and it goes in cycles. It goes up and down. And so definitely something to look into. Perfect. All right. I think uh, Lolita is going to take us into our final four questions. Awesome. Great, great, great stuff, Jeremy. I can listen to you for forever. <laughs> uh, well, all good things must come to an end. So in wrapping things up, I'm going to ask you our final four questions. Are you ready? I'm ready. All right. Uh, what is the one tool you use in real estate investing that you could not do without? 
Yeah, um, I would say that uh, networking, even though I know we've talked about it, is literally the one thing I could not, if there was not networking and I couldn't get access to all these opportunities, these private opportunities, mm -hmm. I wouldn't be able to continue my cash flow stream. So networking is literally the one tool in real estate that I couldn't do without. And that's because I'm a passive cash flow investor. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Uh, can you tell us a story about your biggest mistake in real estate investing so far? And what is the main takeaway for our listeners? Yeah. Um, you know, this is a, this is kind of a unique story. So whenever I invest in anything, I always say there's like, I can tell you 20 ways a deal can go wrong. And that what all, I all consider them like 1% risks, right? Very unlikely, but still, um, this is one that was an interesting learning experience. So, um, and this is actually not predictable, but I learned something as a byproduct of it. So I invested in actually a student housing opportunity in 2008, um, yeah, right across first property across from a state university campus in Michigan. And I actually invested in that property at the time, even though I was being very careful between 05 and 08, because I was, I had no concern about the continued demand for student housing. It was a very large state university, and I knew people would be going there during it. And even during a downturn, those numbers, the enrollment numbers potentially go up. And so it was a great strategy. Um, the operator I invested in had actually owned 17 student housing properties, most of which they own themselves out of their own money. So they're very wealthy and experienced. Mm -hmm. Um, and so we went into this property and everything was fine for the first three, four years, call it like hundred percent occupied. And then spring comes around one year and, uh, we get a notice and all the students get a notice from the city saying, look, we've got to, we've got to close the bridge for repairs during the summer. We have to fix it during the summer months, but, uh, it'll, don't worry. It'll be open for like the fall semester, right? You'll be able to get to school. So, um, of course, some of the students didn't believe it. And um, we, had, we dropped down from, let's say, 100% occupied to 65% occupied. Now, you can be a 65 and be okay in the way we were structured. But the problem mm -hmm. was that we had actually assumed a loan in that process. And the loan was due that fall. And then the <laughs> bank was not willing to extend the loan for a year, I think, because they wanted the property. Because it was a fantastic property. Mm -hmm. Over 300 units. And um, so we actually, it was the only foreclosure I've ever been in. Um, and we got foreclosed and, um, what's really interesting is that the operator, uh, on their own will without anybody asking, as far as I know, um, decided they felt really bad. They lost a ton of money on a re partial recourse loan. They still actually transferred everyone's interests, uh, or investments from one property to another. It was another property across from a state university, Texas, uh, campus in Texas, that they owned themselves and they transferred everyone's money over. It took about a year so that we wouldn't lose our money. So they were, mm -hmm. losing, they were losing tons of money in a recourse loan and they were losing, they were giving away some of their equity in another deal they owned. Mm -hmm. But you know, they just, that was their personality and they felt horrible. And you know, two very important lessons. One is, um, you know, at the time back then, I wasn't smart enough to really, um, to understand the recourse, sorry, the, the loan assumptions, so to speak. I shouldn't say I wasn't smart enough, but just that, you know, instead of having a fresh loan for 10 years and adding more predictability to the processes, which is what I look for today, I should have been more careful in understanding that there was a loan coming due in three years. It was going to require a refi. And it was during a downturn coming up that I knew was coming up. Um, and so now I'm a lot more cognizant of looking at that on the loan side. But really interestingly to me, um, I learned that, and this is going to sound really odd, but I learned that if you invest with a sponsor who's really wealthy, they can choose to help in certain challenging situations. So for example, if there's a cash call that's needed, they may not want to ask investors for the money. They may just put a loan in themselves because they have the money to be able to do so. Whereas if you invest with a sponsor who doesn't have a lot of money, 
it might be harder for them to potentially fix challenges without having to bother investors. And so, um, you know, that being said, just because someone's wealthy doesn't mean they're going to help or do the right thing. Mm -hmm. So, um, but what it really taught me overall is like really get to know who you're making a bet on because they can either help or make things worse potentially. And, it, you know, over the years, I've learned that the number one thing to look at is who you're making a bet on. And number two is the property itself. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, that was a great example of something that could have never been predicted, a bridge closing down three years later, for <laughs> years, uh, where the bank actually wouldn't be willing to extend the loan for a year. That was actually the surprise. The surprising thing wasn't the bridge. It was actually that the bank wasn't willing to extend the loan for a year on a property that was normally performing at 100% occupancy. Mm -hmm. So very unique story for sure. <laughs> Have you uh, invested in another student housing project since that? Oh yeah. 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 No, I no issues with student housing. I actually love student housing at certain, you know, in certain locations. I mean, for predictability, you know, if you're investing in, you know, I'm near UCLA, I don't know how many, what the enrollment is, but it's probably over 50,000. I mm -hmm. mean, you get a property near the campus and people are going to continue to go there. That's a pretty good predictability mm -hmm. situation. So for someone like me, that could be great. Just know those student housing properties have more expensive or higher expense ratios because of more repairs, et cetera. But yeah, I, I absolutely, I'm currently in a whole number of student housing opportunities, including the one I mentioned actually. Awesome. Uh, what is the, what is it that you need to do now to grow your life to the next level? Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's growing my life to the next level is more of a long-term thing for me. Um, so I'm on kind of what I call like a slow and steady path to get to a certain net worth amount. Uh, mm -hmm. That's just my personal goal. And so um, what I need actually is time. Um, and so I need time. I need a downturn to come so that we can get better pricing. <laughs> and I can jump back. So I guess if you're asking the number one thing I could use right now is a downturn. I'm sorry if that amazing answer. Wow. <laughs> I'm sorry if that sounds weird, but honestly, that's what I'm waiting for. I, it's been, I, I've been on the sideline two years. I'm going to be on the sidelines probably for another year. I mean, you know, again, I still invest in a ton of stuff, but relatively speaking, and this is the most agonizing part of the cycle for me. I went through between 05 and 08. It definitely, the patience paid off, but it's like, I'm an investor and I want, and my snowball is shrinking because things sell right now because we mm -hmm. locked in my pricing and I can't reinvest it as well. So I definitely, number one thing to take me to the next level is a downturn. <laughs> Fabulous answer. Yeah. And Jeremy, lastly, where can people find out more about you? Um, the easiest way to reach me, well, finding out more about me is tough because I don't have a website. Um, I have a private investor group and I'm allowed to publicly solicit investors, so I don't have a website. But um, if you want to reach me to directly, my email is jroll, which is J-R-O-L-L, at rollinvestments, R-O-L-L, investments with an S, dot com. So jroll at rollinvestments, dot com. You could learn more about me probably about looking at my LinkedIn profile is maybe the best way to learn more about me. If you can find me on LinkedIn, Jeremy Roll. Awesome. Well, Jeremy, we really appreciate you sharing your thoughts and knowledge and even the steps you personally took yourself. Um, I think you gave our listeners a lot of helpful advice and reassurance of being a passive cash flow investor. So thank you. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on. Hopefully people got some good uh, knowledge from this. So thanks for having me. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks, Jeremy. Awesome. Thanks for listening. To learn more about the passive income through multifamily real estate podcast and to get access to today's show notes and to previous shows, visit limitless-estates.com. If you enjoyed this show, please subscribe to the podcast. Thanks again for joining us. Be sure to tune in again next week for another episode.